narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Is it possible that we did not know this, that our intelligence agencies, our intelligence leadership, I'm not saying throughout, because it's very complex and big and bureaucratic, is it possible that someone who has been working with Russian intelligence officers for that long, for decades, was unknown that there wasn't at least a file on this guy? Well, some, some people, I, I certainly talked to CIA, retired CIA people who did I think this was happening. Among them in my book is a guy named Glenn Carl, uh, who around 2015 started, uh, uh, his hair was on fire and he started trying to uh, figure, he figured out enough to figure roughly uh, something like this was going on and he tried to alert the authorities. And I, I think it, it became clear. I, I mean, if you go back to the early 90s when it started, I mean, I mean, there were also both FBI and KGB people saying we didn't know what to do once the Soviet Union folded. So we didn't know, are they our friends now, our enemies? What the, what should we do? And uh, the CIA sort of uh, took several steps back and stopped being uh, truly attentive. Uh, and so did the FBI. I mean, they were, you also had uh, 9-11 in 2001, which just all the uh, enormous amount of the the FBI rather uh, switched its focus uh, dramatically there, and in I think it was 1991, uh, then Attorney General William Barr took 300 FBI agents who were uh, onto the Russian mafia and transferred them to the crack cocaine epidemic. So there were political factors, some of which seemed legitimate, but when I talked to FBI counterintelligence people, they said they. They didn't know who was our enemy, what they should do, or anything. There was no real direction there. Uh, you, you also, and I've reported this before. No, I was just going to say that, I mean, when the fact that you, you have former FBI directors like William Sessions, who end up being the attorney for Simeon Mogilevich, I mean, what does that sends a message to people working at the FBI? And it's, it's not a good one. It's not a good one at all. I'm dying to get no, to talk about a Hanson and, and, and I'm just, we're running out a little bit short. Go ahead. Go ahead, LB. Sorry. Okay. I just want to get this. Greg has a, Craig has a great passage in his book where you talk about, um, and I think you're, you informed on this as well, the explosion of Soviet assets um, running around at the, after the fall of the, the Soviet Union, that we actually had an explosion here. Um, and and shifting all those resources made it impossible to to track um, all the folks that were running around, which leads into the Hansen piece, which was a revelation for me, Craig. I've done a lot on Hansen, and, and I think you brought something new to light in your book around him. Well, thank you. A segue. I mean, part part of the thing with Hansen was during. Uh, when he was, you know, doing a lot of his spying, William Barr was attorney general. This is back in 91 under the uh, presidency of George H.W. Bush. And I found it just fascinating that uh, one of our speechwriters, 
who I communicated with a lot was a Reverend, uh, I mean, Father John Paul Woke, who was uh, in Opus Dei and who happened to be the brother-in-law of Robert Hansen himself. Mm-hmm. And during that period, uh, Barr promoted uh, Hansen twice. Uh, while he was fine, and uh, even during that period, uh, another brother-in-law of Hansen's, Mark Woke, who was in the FBI, uh, really kind of figured out that his brother-in-law, Robert Hansen, was the Soviet mole that everyone was looking for. So Barr covered up for Hansen, who was a Russian spy. Well, for, I'm not sure two- I'd use the word cover up. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I think with knowledge. he promoted him, absolutely, yeah. Hmm. And this is from the guy that's, you know, and he had to... knowledge. Wait, I I'm want sorry. To, I want to lay on that a little bit. And he had knowledge at the time. Craig. No, I don't. I don't him. know that. I don't know okay. that he had knowledge, but it was very, very close to him. And his own uh, Hanson's brother-in-law was his speechwriter. And, uh, you know, it's a small circle of friends. You also tie this all into okay. Opus Day, which is a very, you know, it's a long chapter we probably can't get into now, but it's, everyone needs to read this book because this is probably the most fascinating part for me because I had known some of the, of the Trump stuff. This stuff about Opus Day and Barr and Hansen is so deep and interesting because we don't think of, of Opus Day as being part of this, um, of the Trump uh, presidency per se and how it got there. And we certainly don't think about it as, as being part of the, the turning of our judicial system into a right wing uh, or, or more right wing or uh, how would you say it, more extreme um, judicial system. And yet Opus Dei, through your research, seems to be central to all of that. Well, it, it, you know, it's very authoritarian and, and it seems to run parallel to the idea of an imperial pre- presidency and Barr's notion that uh, enabled Trump and expanded his powers enormously. I, I kept looking for uh, direct ties to uh, Russia, and I really didn't find them that uh, directly speaking. But uh, certainly in the last two years, a lot of the most powerful lawyers, among them people who work uh, at Kirkland and Ellis and ended up in the Bar Justice Department, many of them had represented uh, the top Soviet uh, oligarchs, uh, the same for Jones Day. So you see this in tremendous concentration of power. And when Barr became attorney general, the entire Justice Department was overrun with these people. And you would see, see them on both sides of various controversies. That is, the same lawyers were both prosecuting and defending Jeffrey Epstein, which is one reason he got that extraordinary sweetheart deal from Alex Acosta. Hmm. That's incredible. And the tie in between uh, Epstein and Trump is is really fascinating. And, and again, I'm not sure we have enough time, but I'm really curious to know what you think the basis of that relationship was. Was it just a fun party buddies or or is there more to it? I think it was young girls. I, I, I mean, I, I think they were both frauds of a very different kind. I mean, they, they were uh, – Trump was from Queens, uh, uh, Epstein from Brooklyn, from an even a more modest family than Trump's, of course. Um, but they saw themselves a bit as outsiders trying to make it in Manhattan. Uh, when when uh, Epstein got together with Ghislaine, suddenly he could be fitted with the right uh, clothing. He could learn how to give cocktail parties, all the, the social stuff. And they loved palling around like that. And they, they really had a, quite a bitter 
falling out about 15 years later around uh, uh, 2002 or 2003 when they fought over a property that eventually went to uh, the Russian oligarch, forgive me, I hate pronouncing Russian name. Yes. And uh, um, Epstein was very, very angry. And after that, uh, he was showing around a photo of Trump with two young girls who were half naked. And there was sort of an embarrassing stain on Trump's trousers, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that uh, was suggestive. So this goes right to the heart of of QAnon. I mean, it's just kind of amazing that we're going there. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm trying maybe covering too much territory, but it is it does go to the fact that both too much slow down maybe, but um, you know, it does go to the heart of that. Yeah. I mean, there was it's was like Donald every, Trump? Everything needs a pause of just like let's yeah, take it I know, in. I know, yeah, I know. let's take it in. I know. It's a lot going Jeffrey on here. Epstein had watching Tom the clock. Vermont on Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I know you're watching the clock, but it, Trump the clock. It's okay. Jeffrey Epstein had compromise on Donald Trump and Donald Trump quite possibly there's a suggestion in the in, in your book and and we've talked about this excerpt you know uh, I don't know if you caught Greg Oliar's piece but he wrote about it uh, mm-hmm. Craig um, yeah. of that possibly Trump to kind of this fight that maybe he informed on the uh, on Epstein a little bit maybe he was the one that tip people off or no? Well, I think Epstein felt that way. I I, I don't know, have hard evidence of it, but I think Epstein felt that way and that that was one reason. I I got the impression when he was showing that photo around that there was an implicit threat that he may have dirt on Donald Trump and he may uh, pull the plug if necessary, but he never did. Did they, you know, they had videotapes of everybody, they claimed, um, at least Ghislaine and Jeffrey Epstein claimed, is is that potentially some of the compromise that that uh, Russia has or well, had well that on, brings on up Trump? that Trump? begins brings up the saga of John Mark Dugan who yeah. was in the Palm Beach Sheriff's Department when they were investigating Epstein around 2005 and uh, one of the investigators could see the pressure coming down on the investigation so he gave a small vault uh, to Dugan for safekeeping that contained. Dugan told me uh, 478 DVDs that were apparently uh, uh, sexual compromise. And this um, is now in the and, hands of the of the Russians, presumably. Well, Dugan suddenly he was being chased by the FBI. Remember, he'd been a cop, and he somehow gets across the border. This is his story, as he told me in a phone interview, and some of it was reported, by the way, in the Daily Beast, which did a very good job on this. Uh, and then he flies to Moscow, and I think it was three or four days after his arrival. And and I should say Dugan sort of reminds me a bit of a, a character in uh, Elmore Leonard book. He's sort of a um, – he's not someone you would rely on uh, completely, and without, and he, he's not at all high high ranking. I'm trying to be polite here, yeah. um, but he ends yeah, up in I Moscow, and this seems like an exfiltration in a way. And three or four days after his arrival, uh, I have a picture of him uh, with a man named Pavel Borodin, and who is a rich and and and, and Yuri can speak to this. Uh, but uh, if someone with no credentials arrives in Russia. How likely, you know, tell them who Borodin is and uh, what that means. Borodin is a billionaire. 
he was the guy who brought Putin to Kremlin. He was mm. his first employer in Moscow. He was the guy who arranged the peace first big money laundering operation, which embroiled even the Yeltsin's family, mm. where Borodin, through his foreign uh, business contact, um, they gave Yeltsin's family credit cards. And it was a big international investigation. Um, and it's not incidental that Putin became Yeltsin's successor because he was involved in all this dirty operation. This operation involved American assistance, financial assistance to Russia, because uh, President Clinton came with official visit to Moscow, and Yeltsin brought him to recently renovated Kremlin's palace. And it was gold gleaming all, <laughs> all over the place. It was so impressive that President Clinton was like, wow, and these are the people who are asking us for financial assistance. <laughs> so they, they embezzled hundreds of millions of dollars. Unbelievable. As a reward for this, Borodin was appointed the secretary of a joint of a union state. Russia actually is a union state, union state between Russia and Belarus. And he was the secretary. So basically he was higher than Putin and Lukashenko. Uh, and and you imagine with... that, uh, this is how Dugin explained that Borodin and this cop from, uh, from Florida, they met each other in the Facebook. This is a funny. <laughs> no, it's it, 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 true. And I, 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 I reached Dugan in, I, I reached in, in Moscow. Strangers in the night found themselves. <laughs> so go, it, go ahead, Craig. It is, it is, it is almost absolute indication, a clear indication that uh, the cop was met, was embraced in Moscow, and all these tapes are wow. in a. So there are tapes potentially. So all those tapes yeah. of all oh, these I, famous people, yeah. including possibly, possibly, Donald Trump, is sitting there in uh, in somewhere in, Bo in Putin's orbit in the Kremlin. By the way, I did see one tape. Uh, right. Dugan oh. showed me one, and uh, I should say it was black and white, very grainy. Uh, he, I'm not going to say the name. He identified the man, or said he did. I could not confirm the identity, um, but it was a, an executive in New York who made a lot of money, but uh, wouldn't really excite, his name wouldn't excite a lot of people. But still, uh, you know, the fact that the tapes exist and exist in that orbit is certainly helpful to to at least support the idea of Coprobot. Sorry, go ahead, LB. Absolutely. No, I, I just excites me. So, because yeah. uh, then I, I go, especially if it's a banker, then I go digging in their money. And that's what <laughs> I love to do more than anything. You're through all that dirty money. So we've got this guy, you know, Donald Trump is not going away. He seems to want to stick around. He seems to have a, an army that he's developed. He's got a, a disinformation campaign that's, you know, bamboozled half of, of, of America into believing falsehoods. Um, some of that knowledge and, and technology must come out of Russia or at least out, outside of this country. Um, and he seems to be hell-bent on starting some sort of movement, whatever that might mean, as sort of a separatist maybe separatist, maybe insurgent, who knows what it is, um, entity like a second presidency almost in this country. Is this, is this in the realm of what Russia would have planned for, for Trump, or is he just freelancing? Um, well, 
you know, with my career, I know for sure that you cannot plan any operation for 40 years. And it is difficult to plan anything at all in this world. And if you plan operation, it should be the simplest operation as possible. Two, three steps ahead, that's it. Otherwise, you go nowhere. It just happened. It happened. The Russians, they had in their modus operandi, they seem to recruit so-called prospective agents. Like in the heydays of the KGB, in the 30s, late 30s, they recruited five students in Cambridge in England, which later became the top guys in British intelligence, uh, in royal family, etc., etc. And it became like a textbook for the KGB bonus operandi. So this is in their culture. They cannot wait. No problem with this. They can develop for years. They can develop for decades. Mm. Uh, it's not a big expense, actually, for them. Uh, nothing to be, you know, no reason to hurry. But sometimes it happens. And but this, this is a playbook we've seen before from the Kremlin. We've seen this sort of playbook in Africa and other places where these sort of these leaders set themselves up as sort of, you know, factions or separatist um, entities. And they, for whatever reason, often money, often resources, often commodity. This is, this is part of the playbook of, of, of what Russia does around the world. You know, I have, I sometimes I think that the Soviet biggest mistake of the Soviet leadership was that they focused on missiles, on nukes to threaten the West. Had they focused on corruption, it would have been cheaper for them. (laughs) Maybe they did. Maybe they did focus on corruption. And it's a big question who would have won the Cold War, you know. Because what scares me right now is the process I called shredderization of Western political elite. Shredderization comes from the word Schroeder. This is former chancellor of Germany who became Putin's, uh, who became a Gazprom employee several days after he stepped down from his position of chancellor of Germany, meaning that the talks with him about taking employment is Gazprom, were underway when he was still the chancellor. You know? mm. So yeah. it looks like it's a, this is a modus widespread modus operandi by the Kremlin, and it penetrates. It has penetrated Europe. It has penetrated UK, and as we can see, it has been penetrating in political elite of this country as well. And this is the biggest national security threat that I can see for this country. Is leaders being right. co-opted into Russian companies or into? It's, uh, what exactly is that threat? Can you identify it more, more clearly? Well, they corrupt, they corrupt leaders, they corrupt politicians. Yeah. They corrupt right. Politicians. I, you know, I, I would add. I, I would add that this is, you know, that this really is a war of sorts, and it's one without bombs, bullets, or boots on the ground. And instead, it's corruption, it's cyber warfare, it's disinformation, and it's been enormously effective. I'm unbelievably effective. Uh, Putin says again and again that American democracy is corrupt. Well, now at least 70 million people or so in America believe that, and we did it ourselves in a way, uh, with a a lot of prodding from them. But this is not going away entirely with Donald Trump, that's for sure. I mean, I think Biden's victory was a very important victory. But if you look at the Republican Party today, to me, it's like the party of regions in Ukraine, and they're just uh, puppets for Russia. It looks like that. Is that the case, Yuri? Yep. 
Well, I wouldn't say well, the whole party is a puppet of Russia, but the penetration into the uh, Republican Party, I believe it's 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 a real issue. It's a big issue, like penetration of the Russian intelligence community into the Conservative Party in Great Britain is huge, just huge. So this is going to be... Go ahead. No, it's just also sort of invisible. I mean, no one seems to really care that, I mean, to take one of many, many examples that uh, uh, someone like uh, Leonard Blavatnik can give uh, tens of millions of dollars to the Republican Party because he's both a Russian oligarch and he's a naturalized U.S. citizen. And there are hundreds of loopholes like that uh, that can they can drive a truck through to corrupt people. Yuri actually testified about uh, the danger of this uh, before the United States Congress in 1999, more than 20 years ago. So uh, we could see Russian money was coming in. And it is a global problem, as you point out. Is there a possibility that the world will finally coalesce and at least confront Putin or whoever follows him with sanctions that are really meaningful? Well, I believe this is a high time. It's a must. Mm-hmm. Because it reminds me, probably reminds me the early series in Europe, in Germany, uh, with, with a well-known political leader of the series in Germany. Uh, it's high time to respond to Putin, and it's not difficult. It is not difficult. The Russian economy is a lousy uh, shape. Uh, the social tension is growing. Putin is low, losing it. The only thing which is required, actually, is political will in this country and in Western Europe. And this is what is missing, to my amazement. Just recently, two days ago, European Union uh, reviewed, discussed the recent poisoning of Navalny in Russia, uh, his un- uh, subsequent incarceration, etc. No decision whatsoever. It was explained that while well, no one proposed anything, therefore we didn't make any decision. But it's it's, it's just pathetic. In By fact, the way, uh, uh, there was a the, call. The, the strategy to. Sorry, keep going. Sorry. Uh, yeah, there were calls. There were calls from separate states, but when it came to discuss this on podium, it was explained that there was no specific proposal. I believe the strategy towards Putin is simple. It's based in the criminal law, which is said, which says, at least in Russian criminal law, which says that the best prevention of future crimes is to make the crime punishable. He commits the crime; he must be punished. If he commits, he poisons Skripal, he goes, Litvinenko, he goes unpunished, he will poison another one. He is not unpunished, he will poison another one. He used uh, chemical weapons in his country, he hasn't been punished, he will use these uh, chemical weapons in other country. And it's a reality, it's, it's, it's going to be worse until he is confronted. And confront him, it doesn't require using nukes. It doesn't require uh, using uh, armed forces. What is required is sanctions, sanctions which were embedded into the law over the preceding four years by the, uh, mostly by the House of Representatives. And this but includes sanctions against Abramovich, right? So that's the Abramovich. big call right now. 
is that you know, all these people are saying Deripaska should be sanctioned back again because this is one of the key tools of the Kremlin, Deripaska and his Rusal company. Um, yes. So it's simple. What is needed is political will. So these are basically the Magnitsky sanctions. These are the things that, that could possibly stop Putin now. Um, and Trump, how do, how do we approach Trump knowing what you know about him and with your, uh, with your, you know, your KGB learning and, uh, and knowledge, how would you tackle someone like Trump to, to, to get him uh, off, the, off the stage for American politics? Well, I believe he has lost it. He made a mistake. And Putin in Kremlin made a mistake. Because had Trump left his position peacefully without what happened on January the 6th, he could have continued his political activity, rocking the boat in this country for four more years, extending his political base, and maybe coming back in four years as an, uh, uh, yet again as a candidate of, uh, for the presidency. But now, after he had done in, uh, in January 6, uh, I believe his chances for a comeback or efficiently rocking the boat in, for, in favor of Russia over the next four years are pretty much limited. Therefore, his usefulness for the Kremlin is not big anymore. Besides, as I said, there is a transition in power. Putin is losing it. So let me say it this way. Trump's handler in Kremlin is about to retire. (laughs) Uh, Hillary Clinton had it. Who will be the next one? Hillary Clinton had an interesting tweet the other day, and she said someone has to figure out if Trump uh, was in touch with Putin just before the insurrection on January 6th. Oh, yeah. Um, it's interesting, interesting I don't know tweet. the answer. Yeah. 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 It would be really interesting to find out. Um, go ahead, LB. I, I just want to say, you guys, my phone has been blowing up, and I'm also paying attention to the comments, trying to catch them. And um, you're you're a hit. <laughs> Everybody has a tremendous amount of questions, and um, and and things that they want to keep talking to you about. I, I it's sort of galvanizing everybody. Mm-hmm. I, so I wanted to let you both know that, and and hopefully we can continue this conversation, yeah. um, maybe a little bit more right now. But also, you know, Yuri, it'd be wonderful to have you back. You know, Craig, you know how I feel about you. you I'll run through a New York parade to get to you. So, um, you know, <laughs> there, there is so much I still to cover. To, there's so much to cover still that we haven't had a chance. But I just want to let you guys know and let the audience know who's watching. We see everything you're saying. I'm trying to track you, but, um, you know, we're, we're going to try to keep following up. Um, and, and thank everyone for being so engaged and involved. And stop texting me now. That's okay. My phone's blowing up. Yeah, thank you very much for everyone who's been putting in those comments. Uh, Craig, as we try to wrap up tonight, and I really do hope you guys could come back for another show. um, Is there a, what are the takeaways? What are you taking away from this incredible book, by the way? This is a must read for anyone who likes even closely. I love the stuff. So for me, it was like, I have to read it. And I I literally read it all in a day because it's so good. Um, But it's a really terrific read. And every American should pick this up. And if you know somebody who 
has any doubts about who uh, Donald Trump is, this book puts those to rest very quickly. It's a remarkable book, American Compromise um, by Craig Unger. It's, it's really a must read. It's a terrific thing that you've produced here. What's your big takeaway from it? Well, I think we're still at war, as I said, and I, and I characterize it. And, and I, I think one chapter of it may almost be over as uh, the Biden victory was very big, very important. Uh, I think the first week of the administration has been great. But he's ruling by uh, his majorities in both houses are razor thin. And if the Democrats were to lose the House in the next election, uh, he would be completely powerless. Uh, so this isn't over yet. And it seems to me you have a new generation uh, who will be fighting to take Trump's place. Uh, such wonderful people as Josh Hawley, uh, Ted Cruz, uh, um, Tucker Carlson. Uh, and we'll have to see what happens. But I, I think the Democrats have to crush them. And Trump has to be fully prosecuted as much as possible uh, so the truth will come out. Um, I mean, there's so much that needs to ha happen. I mean, if you look at social media, it has to be regulated. Uh, Facebook has made billions over uh, uh, just putting out Russian propaganda. Uh, so there's so much that can be done. I could go on and on forever. Yeah, yeah. It really has uh, been yeah. the most remarkable story. Uh, LB, any final thoughts from you? Uh... I, I wanted to say this to Craig, just back on the Hanson thing, because I didn't get to, and as a thought for um, for why people need to pick up this book and read this book, the, two, two reasons. One, if you want this kind of journalism to continue, you need to buy uh, books like this and, and support. I, I know what Craig does, his process, how hard he works, how deep he goes, uh, how, what it takes out of him. Um, and, you know, let's support this. These are the books to buy. These are the journalists whose books you buy, not the ones that get the fancy TV shows or whatever. Bless them. But this is this is the real stuff. So, you know, one, that's why everyone should buy this book immediately. And as you said, to buy it for everybody that, you know, so you can hand this to him. But the other thing is just as just as an example of what the book can do for even people who are really informed on the, all this stuff, is it really shifted my thinking on Robert Hansen uh, only, or expanded it because I had never considered that, and you brought it out in the book of like, well, he was in there during a time where also he could have allowed some something like the cultivation of a very prominent asset like Donald Trump to go unnoticed you know, Absolutely. Donald had help by at the highest levels of the FBI by a KGB mole and every other KGB asset that was being cultivated during the time that Robert Hansen was overseeing that. So um, that's really a profound was, thought when you think yeah, about it. I mean, it's... And I had only thought about Hansen as being uh, someone who was compromising us and our operations to the KGB and not really someone who actually was providing cover as well and could provide the kind of cover that he could prov have provided for people like Donald Trump uh, for the KGB right. who, over here. Who, who better to put in charge of keeping uh, Russian uh, uh, Americans for spying from the Russians than Robert Hansen? Wow. Yeah, exactly. You know? Incredible. Um, is the Cold War over, uh, Yuri? It never stopped for Russians, at least. Uh, what amazes me with Americans, I love America, I love Americans. 
they're very nice people, but sometimes too nice. When President Bush father said after collapse of the Soviet Union, ladies and gentlemen, the Cold War is over. Now we are friends, we are cooperating. And American administration jumped into the cooperation with the Russian government. Here the Russians understood we can play with these guys. And they've been playing since the collapse of the Soviet Union. They never stopped the Cold War. It was like a temporary recess for them. It's kind of in their culture. They don't believe uh, in win-win situation. They believe that there are some nasty forces out there who want to destroy Russia. And you cannot just believe that you, 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 you will nice talk with them, will make them their friends. I know for sure I was inside the Russian intelligence, Soviet intelligence agency where I realized how to influence them. It was early days of Reagan administration when after lengthy talk trying to ask Soviets to remove their medium range missiles targeting Western Europe, when all these lengthy talks ended with nothing. President Reagan deployed Pershing to and cruise missiles. The people in Kremlin next morning woke up and realized that Pershing flies to Kremlin about 10 minutes. That's it. They sober up overnight. They became reasonable people you could negotiate with. <laughs> so this is, if you want to ratio security and good relations with Russia, you need to keep the fist right next to their nose because this is the only thing they realize. It's not because the Russian people are such, but this is kind of weird thing, the negative selection of elite. So the worst people usually have the trend to go to the very top and take the leading position in their country. And this is what makes the problem. Well, let's leave it there. The negative, the, I just want that phrase again, yeah. the negative what of the elite? The negative people in the elite? The negative selection of elite, where the worse negative you are, selection. the more chances you go, you have to go to the very top. This you is the way it is. They call it, it's a popular term, they call it negative selection of personnel. Is that true for everywhere, or just uh, you're talking specifically about Russia? I, I think it was true of so the Trump I administration. The <laughs> I would yeah. say this is the former Soviet Union. Okay. This is the former Soviet Union, because... The bosses in Russia, they pick up assistance by one criteria, criteria, the top criteria. How much compromise I have on this guy? The more compromise I have, the more reliable this guy will be with me. So the more compromise, the better it is for the government. And this is the way they, you know, the That's whole the way system they do is well, the book is called American yeah. Compromat. I highly recommend everyone read it for those very good reasons that uh, Yuri just uh, explained. It is how Russia operates, but it's also a very, very great book about how Donald Trump was cultivated by the KGB.
funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative.